Hey, what's up? It's MJ. Let me tell you about a wine region you need to visit. Just over a year ago, I visited Walla Walla Wine Country for the first time, and let me tell you, it was phenomenal. Walla Walla is one of the most fertile agricultural areas in the nation, producing everything from wheat to asparagus, strawberries, and sweet onions, but is there exquisite high-end wines that have put Walla Walla firmly on the map. Wine growing in the region dates back to the 1850s when the first wine grapes were planted by Italian immigrants. Unfortunately, Prohibition wiped out winemaking, and it wasn't until 1974 when Gary Figgins of Leonetti Cellars began planting grapevines. Ten years later, in 1984, the Walla Walla AVA was approved by the federal government, and in 2015, the Rocks District of Milton Freewater was approved by the federal government as a sub-AVA, within the Walla Walla AVA. The Rocks District is the only AVA in the country based entirely on soil type. So whether you're into Bordeaux varietals, Italian varietals, or like me, Rhone varietals, Walla Walla has got you covered. Do yourself a favor and book your trip to visit one of the most exciting wine regions in the world. Go to wallawallawine.com for more information. Hey, I'm MJ Taylor, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is a self-proclaimed hardcore wine critic whose aim is to bring wine to life, to tell stories about it, and provide buyers with guidance Lisa Parati Brown. In 2008, she became a master of wine and began working for Robert Parker Jr. at The Wine Advocate. And by 2013, Lisa had become editor-in-chief for Robert Parker Wines Advocate and robertparker.com. Her first book, Taste Like a Wine Critic, A Guide to Understanding Wine Quality, was published in 2015. She should have brought me a signed copy, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and in 2020, and that's just because I would love a copy of my book. Now I'm going to have to buy it. You guys know you're going to, when you, you come to no, America, okay. yeah. it's a deal. Yeah, that, that's your, your prize at there the is. end. <laughs> and you might have a good wine or two. Too. Okay, that'd be cool. <laughs> and in 2021, Lisa left the Wine Advocate to become the co-founder of the Wine Independent. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this is so cool. Good to be here. It's good to be here with you. So we're actually, this is um, just so you guys know. We are both uh, speaking. We are both here at the, uh, what's this called? Wine to Wine. Wine to Wine. Business. In Verona. In Verona. We're sharing ideas. <clears throat> and um, I'm sure if we were stateside doing this, Lisa would have brought something from her stash in Napa. But we both here and we, we just asked Stevie, shout out to Stevie Kim for a bottle of wine. So we have a Montferrato in 1491, which... Um, has some Columbus reference in my mind going on, mm -hmm. but I digress. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, thanks for being here. 
Thank you for having me. This is fun. This is really cool. This is really cool. <clears throat> so, um, Ari Strexel, friend of mine. <clears throat> and friend of mine. And a friend of Lisa's. Uh, Ari wrote a first article ever about me. And anyway, so we go back and forth and she emails me and says, Lisa, you and Lisa Wolf going to be in Corona. She's a fan. I'm like, shut up. She's not a fan. She well, no, I actually told her because she's like, oh, I'd love to get you out to New York so you could do something with MJ. And I'm like, oh, I'd love to do something with him. And so it was like, you know, I mean, just a few minutes later after I, I get done talking to her, I'm looking through the program mm -hmm. um, for the wine to wine that we're doing. And I'm like, MJ Trowler's coming to Verona. <laughs> so I'm back out with it going, <laughs> she's like, I'll set it up. <laughs> yeah, so cool. So and thank you again. This is really fun and exciting for me because um, I love what you do, um, what you stand for, which we'll get into. Thank you. How long have you been doing this now? Uh, the podcasting, three years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was not in wine. Because I was following you on social media, yeah. and then I remember when you came out and you said, hey, I'm going to do a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to yeah. do it. Yeah, like, it's three years. It's three years. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty insane. You'll, you'll probably be episode like 150 something or so. It's like, um, yeah, because I crank. Of, yeah, I crank. Um, but, but it's not about me, it's about you. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Where, where are you from? Maine. Maine. Okay, Maine. It's a state. Where, yeah. I mean, where, where in Maine? What's the name of your town? I'm, I'm from a very small town in Maine called Detroit, Maine. Not Detroit, what? Detroit, Maine. Population about 500 people. Wow. Um, and it's kind of halfway between Augusta and Bangor, so it really is out in sticks. Yeah. Um, I know, This you'll, get, you'll probably get a kick out of this. I know Bangor, Maine, because the Saucony Running Shoe Factory used to be there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, because I ran in the 80s, he's like, you know, so often he wasn't a factory. He's in Maine for some reason. In fact, my mother worked in a shoe factory this time. What's the tax structure? Is it is it good for corporate taxes? I find no idea. No idea. No, I grew up in Maine. Yeah. And then I graduated from, I went to Colby College in Maine. Oh, you went to Colby? Yeah. Okay, so, but growing up, are you an only child? Do you have siblings? How many in your family? No, I have one sister. She older or younger? One year older. Okay. Almost Irish twins? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we're half Irish and half Italian. So, yes, my father was Italian. My mother was Irish, McGuire, Parati. So, yeah. Makes for Catholic. Very, very bad temper. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't with Lisa. <clears throat> yeah, you're getting it from both sides. Um, and so you said it was kind of 500 people? Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like I grew up in a small town in New Jersey. It was, I don't know, maybe when I was growing up, 15,000, maybe. Yeah. It's probably like doubled by That's like now. our biggest city in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> And like, I, so, so what, what's it like in town? Like you must know everybody. No, you're related to everybody. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. I always like to say that my mom actually went out to the city. So she went to New Haven, Connecticut and found an Italian uh, immigrant guy. Is that where your dad's from? Yeah, yeah, originally. I, I went to college in New Haven, Connecticut. Wow. And yeah, and people, wow, people don't even know about the Italian. First of all, you guys don't know that the best pizza in America, year after year, from Zagata, is in New Haven. 
Yeah. And typically, it's a, it's a real Italian American. It's a real, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's a port city, you yeah. know. Uh, well, my grandparents on that side came over, um, you know, to Ellis Island and everything like that, landed um, in New York, but then went to um, New Haven. And my grand, my grandfather never even learned English. I mean, they were living. Yeah, in you're ghetto living there. in uh, was it Worcester? Yeah. You didn't have to. You didn't have to learn English. No, because it, it was, was like you know, it was Italian ghetto there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, full on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the pizza's insane. So wow, that's so. Mom, what was the help? Why did she go down to Maine? Because she had to escape from Maine. You know? Oh yeah, she grew up on a farm in Maine, and she was like, so she she you know followed you know like uh, the, went off for the glittering cityscape. Um, lasted, you know, a couple of years long enough to find my father. This is how, you know, I, I remember the story that yeah. she told me. And she landed, she lasted long enough to, um, in, in the city to, to find my father, drag him back to Maine. He only lasted a couple of years there before they got divorced and he went back to New Haven. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So she was a single mom, um, looking after my, so she got married one year. Um, had my sister the next year, had me the next year, and got divorced the next year. Whoa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was yeah. that like, what was that like? Cause that's, that's gonna be like scandalous in a small town. Oh God, no. That was great because like, like I said, everybody was related in my okay, town. Yeah, yeah. So she brought some new blood in. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Diversify the gene pool. Exactly. Okay. You know, it's it's like one of those uh, what we would say movies, uh, Solstice. Have you ever yeah. seen that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they come in, they bring these the strangers back yeah. to this rural cult in the yeah. middle of Sweden. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up, um, were you an athletic child? I mean, like, so Maine, we all think lobster, and and and. Yeah, that's a good Maine accent. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of trying things. I'm just weird. I'm just weird in my head. Um, <laughs> I know I've beaten mine out of me, you know? I well, I personally, people are like, oh, you're from New Jersey. You don't have an accent. I never really had an accent. Actually, I didn't have an accent. And my mother is from Georgia. She didn't have an accent. Like I, it just, I don't want to say accents. Yeah, have an accent. I don't say, I want to say accents like kind of like a are lazy. West kind of, yeah. you know, like. Yeah, I don't think ac accents are on one level a little bit lazy. They are a little bit lazy at one point, but also. But conformist as well. I think but I was going to say, yeah, if you're in that area, like, like I will, you notice if you're somewhere for about a week, you, 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 you kind of. You start well, selling like it. You get kind of like. <laughs> listen to the tonality, you kind of like conform, you want to fit in. So you can yeah. meet. So I agree with that. Um, but, um, yeah, so what was, uh, did you do sports? What did you do for fun? Uh, yes, well, I, you know, I, I, um, I was a, a geek. Um, I, I studied a lot. I, I learned very quickly that your, your only way out of, you know, um, small town poverty was to use your brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I read a lot. I, I read from a very young age and I read and I studied and everything like that. In high school, I used to do um, cross country and track and field. I ran cross country and track and field. Really? Yeah, I was. I loved running, uh, and then then I, you know, managed to get into Colby, which is a great school, guys. By the way. Yeah, I know it was fun. It's a small liberal arts college, and it was just perfect <laughs> for me because um, uh, I was, you know, 
such a book. Well, actually, when I went there, I wanted to study um, psychology, child psychology specifically, and mm. figured I needed to bash out some issues. Um, <laughs> maybe I can do something myself. Um, but then I, I got bored the first year, so I swapped over to my real passion, which was always um, English literature and performing arts. And so I did a double major in those. And um, that eventually took me to London for the first time. I studied a year abroad in London, studying mainly Shakespeare and acting. And that's where I got rid of my accent. The first thing my, my, one of my acting coaches said is, we're getting rid of that accent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I didn't even the, realize that. Just, this was back in the day where was, there was no mincing words. No, 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 no. Not like, I'm going to tell the team, they said I have an accent. The next thing you know, teachers on the first one probate. Then now, this was when yep. you got schooled in school. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Elocution lessons. Oh, my God. So, something you said just, my wife is from New Haven, Connecticut, and she wrote Single Father. Uh, and she's like in our age where we talk about our age. And, and um, as a young girl, she loved reading too, because she found it was a way to escape, like to experience other worlds. Was that similar for you? Absolutely, absolutely. I was a book nerd. You know, we did, well, we didn't have Netflix, we didn't have, you know, social We had, well, I mean, it was like, it was like there were like three major channels. It was like maybe seven, like she had, like in New York, but you had the equivalent, she had, yeah, ABC, CBS, NBC, and you'd have like, Channel 9 or Channel 11, which have these odd things, and like and Channel 13, you know. The programs. Yeah. I mean, I have watched every episode of Gilligan's Island. You can possibly know. Oh, my know. God. <laughs> and the things you could do with coconuts and twine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How they almost get saved. Every, I mean, the plot is the same. Basically. Anyway, um, anyway you, 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 you learn to read from an early age, and then I just yeah. devoured every single book I could get my, yeah, my yeah. hands on. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And so you go to Colby, and you switch to your passion, and then you talk about like going to London. That had to be huge there. It was. It was the first time I'd ever got on a plane. Wow. Um, it, was, it was incredible. It was just, it was mind-blowing. I mean, because... You know, even at that stage, um, I had no idea that there were different currencies that, you know, you know, people spoke in different accent. I, did, I just I didn't have a clue on how the world worked. I was really like so great. Mm -hmm. And I, I got there and it was like my mind was blown. I loved it. I thought, oh, my God. Where has this place been? I, I had imagined up until then that I would, you know, just just live in Maine all my life. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I got there, I thought, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I am not, you're not taking me back. Well, I did go back. I did go back um, my right. senior year, finished my degree. But literally the day that I graduated, I got on a plane and went straight back to London. And I wound up living there for 13 years. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. I mean, I used to work with kids in the inner city and i think when we were doing like the pre-game the warm-up we were you know just we we're sharing ideas i think I mean, one of the things you said is like how people were really more similar than we are dissimilar um and it is such an impact like i've worked with kids who same as you like had never left their town if we didn't take them to tour college they never left their town in the evening yep. right yeah and like you put them on a bus and you just take them an hour and a half away to Western Massachusetts, and their mind is blown. Like yeah. to actually see a cow. The possibilities. Yeah, yeah, it sets off. Yeah, 
I love uh, that you uh, uh, went to went to the state of the back line. So, did you go to grad school, or just you just had connections and went back and started working? What was the? No, I I went there and I was gonna I was convinced I was gonna be a playwright. <clears throat> okay. I was gonna write plays. I was always the uh, you know I am the eternal optimist. I believe anything. I still to this day always believed even you know. Um, uh, it doesn't matter, I think, how much you educate yourself, as long as you always maintain that that you know idea that anything's possible. Mm -hmm. That you know, as as long as you um, you know stick to it, you understand what's involved in getting to where you need to be. Long story short, I didn't become a playwright. <laughs> 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 but I did write plays. I did. And I, I did get them produced on the fringe and I had a lot of fun doing it. But I quickly realized that actually playwriting doesn't pay an awful lot of money. Sure. Not even enough to pay the rent. Sure. Um, so I did have to get a real job to support my playwriting habit. But let's talk about, I want to talk about because, so I don't know these things. This is part of the reason, I think major reason I'm part of it. I'm like, who's cool? Who would I want to share some wine with? And what can I learn? Right. So, I grew up Jersey Shore, not far from New York City. I know about off-Broadway. What, and obviously theater, I don't want to say, well, it started with the Greeks, but Shakespeare is the father of modern theater. Mm -hmm. So you're in London. Yep. What's their off-Broadway scene like? Like, what's it called there? Like, oh, well, yeah, they, they've got the, what they call the fringe. Okay, um, the, so the fringe. So they've got okay. West End, which is the equivalent of Broadway. Okay. Um, and that's the big theaters that you see in the West End of London. And then they've got what there are called fringe theaters. And those are usually in pubs. I, oh. It's wonderful. You know, yeah. uh, first of all, the whole pub culture. I just, I wish somewhere in America would adopt the pub culture where what everyone is, has a... What is pub culture? See, this is, this is how this goes. This yeah, is how, like, oh my God, so what's pub culture? Pub culture is, okay, so a public, a pub is short for a public house. And it's right. basically uh, uh, um, usually owned by a brewery, but you can have like a private pub as well. And it's just, it's a bar, right. but it's, it's like a cozy bar. It's like if you took um, Friends, you know, the coffee house, yeah. And you dimmed the lights a bit. You allowed smoking in there. And lots of swearing and lots of drunks. And everybody knows everybody because it's your local pub. Well, I like a public house. Yeah. I get it now. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that for years. Yeah. You know, John Brown's public house. Yeah. And then the, yeah. It's like somebody's basement. Yeah. And so what a lot of these um, uh, pubs, they're, they're, most of them are really old, yeah. you know, um, and they'll have like a, a room in the back that they just turn into a little theater space. Okay. And you just, you know, you can, you can go in there, you know, and, and usually they'll have something managing it and you, you know, you pitch your play to them and uh, the production and everything like that. And they'll either accept it or reject it. And so it gives, I think, young playwrights and, and young actors as well who want to sort of work their way up to West End an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, hone their craft. That's really yeah. cool. So what was, what was your, one of, one of your plays that got produced about. Well, the, okay, the first one was just insane. I just, I, I want to hide. You know, it's just, they're all black comedies. Well, hold on, first of all, I asked her a question, like, what advice you give me on your subs? Like, not be afraid, not hide. Just like, I don't want to talk about it. 
<laughs> so I love that in black comedy. So like, yeah, yeah. we also talk about it. So Heather's stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So the first one was uh, about, okay, well, listen, it's, it's, uh, I would like to think it's a comedy, but maybe it wasn't that funny. It's about this girl who kind of goes crazy and takes all her own teeth out. It's called The Dentist. Um, this She's also from Maine and is a big fan <laughs> of Stephen King. So there is a lot of dark humor and, yeah, and, yeah. and that's pretty nice. Okay, so I love that. And okay. then the second one was called Tucson. Um, and it's about, um, it's, it's about the, the, the town of Tucson and the sort of, you know, racial and, um, religious, um, struggles and, and things like that. Did so, you spend time there or you just, I, I had a friend that was living at Tucson at the time. Yeah. And so I did, um, I called in a lot of that, you know, when mm-hmm. I, I, I took in from that vibe that was happening there. Yeah. It's, um, and then, uh, I did write another play that is about, uh, brother and sister, American brother and sister, um, running a restaurant in London called American Cravings. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I might revive that one. Actually, that was a good one. That sounds. That pretty was pretty good. dark though, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you, you did say that you found out quickly that being a playwright, um, kind of like having a podcast, is 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 uh, more of a expensive hobby sometimes. Um, uh, so you said you had to find a day job or a real job to kind of fund that. Oh, we're getting to the wine part of my life. Yeah, now. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, so like, what was what was what were you doing? So you grabbed. I went to work in a wine bar. So you went to work in a wine bar. Yeah. All right. And so, what what time period is this? So this would be. I started working in the wine bar. It must have been 1991, 1992. Okay, so wine bars weren't really a thing here that I remember back then. Uh, so. They were really big in the 90s in, in London. London, okay, really big. So talk about, so we, we mentioned public house. So we, we you think, you think, uh, Breitman, you think Bassell or whatever, you think these, uh, Boddington's, you think these, and, and, and I, I want to say Guinness, you know, it's Irish, but you know, British controlled island for some, but anyway, you think of these, these classic beers, mm. uh, you don't think, and you don't think of wine. I don't think, I didn't think of wine. Uh, oh, the wine scene in London was huge then. Yeah. I mean, probably bigger than it is in America now. Yeah. America's now taken over. Yeah. Um, but uh, the wine scene was huge and it, it still is, but uh, America's just grown so much. And sure. The wine scene here has exploded since then. Um, but it was, it was very big then. And this is when wine bars were really just getting some traction in the early 90s. So, I was working for a wine bar that was in um, one of the poshest or, or most expensive areas of London called Pimlico. See, that's very, very British. Posh. Very posh, yeah. Posh spice, that's what it is. <laughs> like posh spice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she would have been in there. Yeah, <laughs> she would have. Have you seen that documentary? No. There's a, there's a, Beck, there's a documentary about David Beckham on Netflix, which my wife watched, and I've I've heard tons of it's really good, but I have seen this one clip on social media where Victoria was like, she was like, you know, we grew up working places like, and he like he's like, tell them the truth, tell them the truth, like so, uh, like apparently, I, mean, I don't know how she started, but when she was in high school, her father had a Rolls Royce, so that's you're not, you're not, you're not middle class, working class once you have a Rolls Royce. No, of course not. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> so it's posh, but so it's posh. Um, you're working at a wine bar. Did you just walk in with? No, I, in fact, um, I, okay. <laughs> a friend of mine actually said to me, oh, why don't you come and work at the wine bar I'm okay. managing? Okay. So he was managing the wine bar. Otherwise, I probably would never. Right. Because I, like, I didn't 
I didn't drink wine then. Right, know? no, no wine. Your mom no. didn't have wine no. on the table. Oh, absolutely. Never not. did like. No. Nope, nope. Box wine. And I didn't even drink wine back then. I was wow. um, a Jack Daniels and Coke girl. Yeah. Um, no, I, nope, nope. Um, so I walked into the wine bar and I said, okay, yep, I can do this. And I say, you know, I had to learn how to open a bottle of wine. I had to learn how many colors of wine there were mm -hmm. and which ones you chilled and which ones you didn't. I can remember, you know, I was like, okay, hey, I can do this. I can do this. And so, you know, I've been working there a few months, you know, um, and, you know, by then I'm working more or less full time because, mm -hmm. like I said, the playwriting wasn't really paying um, and the money was good at the wine bar. And then um, my friend who was managing the wine bar, he gets a job somewhere else. Okay. Um, and he said, oh, you know, the management position is up for grabs here, um, you know, and, um, you know, you, you, might, you should apply for it, even though I knew nothing about wine. And so... I was really motivated though because salary was good and it came with a three bedroom roof terrace apartment in the poshest area of London. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Wow. So that's where my acting skills came in. So <laughs> the, the wine bar was owned by um, a big pub group. They owned about 250 pubs wow. um, and they only owned two um, wine bars and they were based out in Dorset which was hundreds of miles away from London um, so they came up to interview for the position and I you know I was just I talked the talk um, and then I had to walk the walk <laughs> after they gave me the job so I quickly signed up for WSET classes okay. um, and uh, yeah I was very motivated to keep that job uh, so yeah I went through the ranks at WSET all the way through diploma um, and then I, I managed, I, I wound up staying at the wine bar for five or six years. Um, and then it was one Christmas party too many when I just thought, no, I can't do this. Because you, you're living at the wine bar, you know, I was working like 24 seven, Yeah, you know, right. they're always on duty. And so then I was like, okay, I'm just going to apply to every single fine wine merchant. I'm on a desk job. And so I just wrote a letter to every fine wine merchant in London. And um, uh, one of them came back to me and said, ah, we've got an opening that might work for you. I'm doing on trade sales in London. Um, and uh, also, you know, training our, um, they had 13 wine bars in there um, as part of their group. Um, and so I went to work for Corny and Barrel Wine Merchants. Work for Corny and Barrel. Wow. Uh -huh. Holy shit. Yeah. It's like, um, God. Who's still, I, 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 I want to say like Sherry Lehman, but Sherry Lehman's out of business now. <laughs> so I, I think Zachy's would be a better lady. Yeah, that maybe. <laughs> but, but it's, but, it's one of the oldest. Well, right. It's older than America. Let's right, put it that right. way. So, oh so I started at Acker, which is the oldest wine store in America. So it's actually older than America. Like it's like yeah. iconic. Let's talk about, let's walk through the WSET because back then, so like, like my whole thing was like making fun of influencers. Like I have a WCT one, and like it was, it was like when you went into wine education back then, it was. This is this is my words, not hers. But it was more serious. It was not, so I could charge people for my Instagram. It was like it was like you were really committed, yeah, to something. And, you, and it wasn't it wasn't online. No, no, no. Right, right, right. So yeah, so yeah. So talk class. about that, please. Yes. Yeah, like, I didn't. legit. Legit, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you had to, you had to go to class. I think it was um, 
for the, the lower levels is two days a week and then it was three days a week. And you, you had to do so much class time in front of the instructor and tasting experience. That was part of the whole Yeah, that, that would be such a, a filter nowadays for people because people yeah. can do it all. I mean, like, but like it literally, like yeah. it was a commitment. Yep, you had to sit there, yep. Yep. And they were in front of the instructor too. It's not even, it's not yeah. even like. Yeah. And they're bullies. Exactly. Right. Right. Like people, like, I mean. It's like being in the army or something. Like, cause what do you think that is? Right. Cause I'm also <laughs> thinking about. That's so, stupid. <laughs> when they're there, it's just kind of really getting started in America, kind of taking off a little bit. Yeah. I've been yeah. married doing volleyball. Well, I don't even know if it came over to America. Yeah, I'm this trying to think. The early 90s. Yeah. yeah I'm, think, I'm, trying 90s by this I'm trying to think when Mary said she started. Goes back, go back to this episode where Mary doing Mulligan, who, yeah, yeah. but, but, but like, like, like it's full on and, and you could talk, we'll talk about this, but like, I think because we're American and we do this and it's what we do, but we forget like, but the whole wine trade is like British Claret is like the, the major players in this wine game for oh gosh, yeah. they used to ship the wine in barrels to to London and then they would bottle it in London. I mean, a lot of the wines were from Bordeaux were, were bottled in London. Um, you know that they they, uh, they were like instrumental in in um, furthering the, the wine industry really. Um, well, that's and also that's why you have Lynch Bosch, like you have these, you know, like why do you have these names? Yeah, Smith. A lot of uh, Smith Old Lafitte, like like what is it? Yeah, and then you and, know, in Cognac, Hennessy, you know, and Pomeroles. There are several, you know. Yeah. Um, but so, so you went all the way through the levels there. Mm-hmm. How long? And, and you said you were there for the wine bar for like five, six years. So, yeah. like. What was the typical cycle to move through each level of your WSCT? We did, um, at that stage, they had um, the um, uh, the uh, basic level, and then they had the um, intermediate level. Mm-hmm. Or, no, they had, oh, I remember what it was called. It was called the certificate, higher certificate, and then the diploma. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so how long did it take you to... You went through level four? Yeah, up through the diploma. Up through the diploma. Yeah. So the diploma's at end. Yeah. And then um, went on to the master one. Okay. So, but then you go to work at Corny and Barrow. Yeah. All right. So now you have this, you have a... Yeah. By then I had my diploma. Yeah, your diploma. You had your wine out. And what type of sales were you doing? On trade. On trade. So Uh, what is that? Is that, what does on trade mean? It's to sell to the French mafia. I mean, all all of the top Michelin star restaurants had French sommeliers back then. That's a whole so other thing. We too. called it the French mafia. Oh, totally. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I mean, I, like I tell people, I'm like, I'm like, you gotta kind of, you don't have to understand, but like, even in, like, when I started the wine business, '97 in Acker, there was like really like only like five sommeliers in New York City, like actual, and they were like French. Like you said, it was like it was it wasn't this. It wasn't this thing where I'm a master sommelier. Um, no, that's fine. I, I mean, and, exist, I, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like, but I've never worked in a restaurant. I just teach class. I mean, like, it was a, I say this, I've said, I keep saying this, and I shout out to Raj Park because he actually said it. Like, for me, because I went to law school, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't practice law. I would not say I'm a lawyer. <laughs> if you didn't sell, if you haven't sold yeah. wine on the floor of a restaurant, you're not a sommelier. Like, we have too much. Like, I love words. Words are not in the change. However, these these are trades. Yep. If you don't yep. have, if exactly. you're not showing your ass crack and smell like shit from doing pipes, you're not a plumber. 
Exactly. Okay, like there's certain <laughs> things I think you have to do. Way of putting it. You know, <laughs> to to like you can have that title, and I say you can have that title and go say that, but but yeah, but don't say you're a psalm because psalms work on the floor of fucking restaurants in my world. Exactly. That's just yeah, me. yeah, and and that's very much a part of the skill. Yeah. It's, right. That's yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. There, there's the wine knowledge part. And that, that's why I, I, I have the utmost respect for Snellies. Me too. And I will never be one because I don't have that. I can only deal with so much bullshit from people. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then I'm going to just, I, I just can't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a point where I just can't anymore. Yeah. And, but you have to be able, have to keep on canning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You know, and so yes. I props to the people who do like literally like, you know, I mean, you hear these horror stories, like people order expensive bottles of wine and like want ice cubes and you can't. It's something you can't. No. You have to. You can't. Yeah. You know. And I, I you know. You if, can't twitch your face. I, I'll be like, motherfucker, <laughs> you just spent $500 on that bottle of wine. You want, I, I'll be like, you're gonna, I'm taking it back. I'm taking it back. <laughs> you don't deserve this, right? They get, I'd be fired like eight times a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Customer always right. So the French mafia. So, um, like, were you dealing in wine futures? Like, how are just like? Well, we did sell wine futures, yes. Um, uh, back then, um, selling on Premier or wine futures was really big. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the restaurants um, back then, I mean, they're not, they weren't in the situation that they are now where, you know, cash flow is, is really quite dire. Um, back then, they could invest in a lot of the, the um, uh, established restaurants and the livery companies that they have there, which are old, gentlemen's clubs, um, um, they would have sellers. Mm -hmm. And so they would buy on Premier every year. And so part of it was selling on Premier, but part of it was selling, you know, what we had in the Corny and Barrow archives. Okay. They had big sellers as well. Um, and putting together wine lists for people. Um, so you would, you would be the, the go-to contact. And since, I mean, it was great working for Corny and Barrow because they were the, um, agents for Domaine de la Romane Conti, for Petrus, for Salon Champagne, for a lot of the big names that, that, you know, if you had a, a Michelin star restaurant, you have to have these names. Um, and so I, I, you know, sold to, to Gordon Ramsay, for example, mm. I would sell to, all of the, the, you know, top restaurants and hotels. And, and was he, is he a big, is that a show or is he really? He was so nice. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. He would, uh, you know, sit down and give me little macarons and, you know, when I, I became, you know, and, and he took a big interest actually in the wine cellar. He had, um, he had a French sommelier mm -hmm. who did the buying. Um, but, um, he was also, um, for example, he had the, the restaurant on Royal Hospital Road. And he, in fact, I started dealing with him just after he'd left Aubergine. Um, and he had just opened up his own namesake restaurant on um, uh, World Hospital Road. Mm -hmm. um, and he also was an investor in uh, Marcus Waring's uh, Petrus restaurant. And since we were the agents for Petrus, mm -hmm. we helped him um, with um, Christian Moex, who was at the time looking after Petrus, to um, allow them to use the name for a restaurant, but also to put together this massive seller of Petrus um, for the restaurant. Um, that was big bonus year for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm listening to your stories and like you, like you grew up in a small town in Maine and then like here you are stocking Petrus, you know, negotiating deals between- No people. going back. <laughs> no going back. Like light years away yeah. from, from, from where, you, where you started, right? 
Right, food and sperm apple wine. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and with um, Corny and Barrow, I mean, my God, that's like a kind of, and Domain Romani County, like you, like super, super high level of the game. And you're like, what, six, seven, eight years in? Yeah. And, and having the opportunity to taste those wines at that, you know, stage as well, you know, and, and to understand fine wine at that level. But I mean, the experience was invaluable. It was, it was, you know, it was a real game changer for me because it, it you know, really opens your eyes to, okay, you know, this is it, you know, at the top. And these, these are what really great wines taste like, not only when they're young, but also when they've got some age on them. And it, it really, you know, um, helps to set up your palate for, for you know, where mm -hmm. it's going. Because mm -hmm. um, that's important, you know. I mean, anyone who's, who's learning about wine and wants to get to those highest levels, the problem now is those wines are just so expensive. I know. I, 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 How do you get there anymore? I mean, Lisa, I think part of what I, this is my hypothesis, I, like, I think part of the, the natural wine movement is just sort of like, and it's part of sour grapes. Like, we're never going to get to taste those wines. It just sucks. I mean, I came up, same thing, like, working in options. I, yeah. Like, I was lucky. My first, first two months of wine, I had, like, Petrus. I had, like, all this crazy stuff that, that if, if this was expensive then, it's exorbitant now. Yeah. Right? Like, like, like the opportunity for, for someone to, like, that, and that's just, I'm happy I'm the agent. Like, I've never had the opportunity, like you said, like, and plus the, the numbers going down, the bottle going down. The price has gone way up. Um, so I can see how that would totally, like you said, it just informs your palate, right? Yep. Um, did you have the opportunity to travel? So you were going to, did you get to go to, did you, did you start taking trips abroad? Yeah, I read Pointing Brown. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, the, and they were great employers, I have to say. I have nothing but good things to say about them. Um, uh, they would take us on sales trips to um, Bordeaux and Burgundy, and I had to go um, to Champagne and well, I should say after I, I worked for Corny and Barra, then I went to work for um, the distributor of Vivplico and Krug. Um, so I, I worked. I wound up working for a, a Champagne house afterwards, um, and so got to know Champagne very well as well. Um, but I have a question for you. <laughs> thank you for saying that. To put a pin in because I remember there was this movie. I can't think of the name right now, but. <clears throat> John Cusack, love John Cusack. I do too. Yeah, yeah. If, if you like these, uh, but he played. I think it was him and Spader played a kid who was in law school, UVA, dropped out, wanted he had ambitions, and he got hooked up with people who corrupt people. Uh -huh. But I remember this is like the eighties, oh nine. They had salon champagne. Uh -huh. Nice one, right? <laughs> but salon was, I mean, but you for can that, actually afford it back then. But for that movie, it wasn't. That popular, like this tiny, it's a tiny, yeah, but like, but it's it's come to this resurgence now. Now you can look at an auction book, and everybody's like, Can't get anything less than a thousand, yeah, yeah. So, so when you said salon, like, and you were, and we're talking about champagne, so talk about, yeah, talk about getting to know champagne, and then, like, but so much of my life is 80s movies, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> and like, but like. I remember seeing a salon champagne in that eighties movie that when I started working at Acker and I said, I was like, we didn't even sell it then. I mean, we might have one or two bottles because yeah. the crew was really big back in the time yeah. we worked for it. And, and, yeah. and Vogue was it 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Vub right. was it. Vub was, it was, was like 35 was bucks. The Vub was when, it. When it was the, the it champagne. Yeah. yeah. It Even it. in London. It yeah. was so like, it's like, you know, the go-to champagne for anyone who was anyone. And you worked for them. Like, they, they always had orange. Like, the orange label was a big thing. It was so distinctive. Just popped out on the shelf. Yeah. All right. So, they call it the yellow label. But yeah. Know yeah, I know. It's not yellow. <laughs> it's not yellow at all. That's like, yeah. like, just for you. You know, they trademarked that. Of course, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that, that color. Yeah. But, uh, Didn't Dan do that with uh, yeah. Masakim Blue, too? Maybe. I think he did. That's because well, actually taking people to court for using that. Of same course color. they would. Yeah. They've got money like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but to call that yellow? Yeah. No, see, is a tennis ball yellow or green? There's an actually a debate there. Yeah. What do you think? A tennis ball yellow, yellow. or green? Yellow. Definitely yellow. Yeah. I'm just a, I can see a little limey green yeah. there, but it's yellow. It's more Lime, yellow than green. Yeah. But anyway, that label is orange. Yeah, through and through. I'll pull out my yeah. my Crayola 64K yeah. and we'll put everything. Yeah. It's nowhere near yellow. Yeah. Okay, so what were you doing for them? At sales and marketing in London. That was the, that was like my dream job. So that was after I left Corning Barrow. Um, I, I wanted to do, this is when I was um, uh, embarking on my MW. Um, I wanted to, you know, do something that was more involved in big brand, um, but still luxury sales uh, and marketing. Um, and so I was doing that for them in London. So, you know, we put together, you know, um, promotional events and activities and um, uh, all of that. And it was just a dream job. I went to, to Champagne all the time and I'd take, you know, groups to Champagne and it was a blast. Um, and then uh, only a couple of years after I started working with them, my husband, because of, by, by now I'm married um, to a Brit um, uh, who who's, uh, was working in banking. At, the, at that time, he was working, um, uh, he was quite young and he was working in the back office doing compliance. Um, he gets his first big break. He's always wanted to be a trader. Of course. And, uh, Why would you be in a So he gets his first big break um, as a bond trader. Um, but the, the catch is it's in Tokyo. <laughs> All right, so Mr. Brown, what's, what's your husband's name? Brown. What's his first name? Richard. Richard, Richard Brown. I, was, I, I had a bar name. Yeah. <laughs> that seemed very British. That does sound, yeah. <laughs> so Richard's equally British. <laughs> Where'd you meet Richard? Um, funnily enough, okay, this is a great story. Funnily enough, he came to work at my wine bar, but I didn't want him to. So my assistant manager um, uh, had been working um, uh before he came to work for me, he had been working at Oddbins, which is a big um, uh, uh, wine shop group. In fact, it's just it's just gone under just last week I think, oh. in, in London. So it's really sad. Um, but and my husband was also as a you know young um, guy um, in college and then fresh out of college, he was um, also working at uh, Oddbins with um, uh, my assistant manager. And so um, he was just about to go into banking. He got a job, but the job didn't start for a few months. And he needed a part-time job just to get him through to pay his rent, you know, until he went into um, his uh, banking gig that he got um, working in the back office, like I said. Um, and so um, my um, assistant manager comes to me and he says, oh, you know, I got this guy, he's a real, he's a real good mate of mine. He's worked with me at Odd Dance, so he knows a bit about mine, you know, and he needs a part-time job. And I, I said, no. no. 
When I'm training out somebody, you know, just so they can saw it off in a few months, I said, you know, because that that costs the company a lot of money, and you know, it's going to slow everybody else down. And you know, no, absolutely not. And then so he was like, oh, please, please, please. And I'm like, okay, all right. He works your shifts. I'm not putting anyone extra on, um, and and you make do with him. Okay, Mm -hmm. as a as a you know, fully trained employee, Um, we're not spending any extra money on training him. And so um, my, my assistant manager like, okay, okay, we can do that. And so um, then it got to be one Friday night. We were absolutely book solid. The place was heaving. Uh, and uh, I had two of my employees phone in sick. Ugh. And I was like, you know, so I went begging to my assistant manager, can you get this guy <laughs> in? You know, because I got nobody else. And so he gets them to come in, and, uh, and then, you know, we just hit it off. Was it like the thing like, <laughs> oh, that, that spark? You're like, oh, yeah. you can work here. <laughs> yeah. But I always like to, you know, say that or remind him that he used to work for me. There you go. There you go. And now you're he upset. And now he still works for me. <laughs> you thought I was the boss. <laughs> I'll always be the boss. <laughs> do, you, do you two have children? Two. Two, yeah. What do you have? Boys? Two girls. Two girls. Two girls. Yeah, one's eighteen. She's just gone off to college. Where's she going? She's at Santa Clara University studying oh, yeah. bioengineering. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then the youngest is nine. So. Oh my goodness! You had a nice little. Welcome to the modern career woman's world. <laughs> you kind of have to speak some out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, oh my goodness! That's great. That's wonderful. Um, all right, so Richard, you guys had gotten married. How long? How long do you think before you got married? Gosh, we were. I think yeah, we were living together for two, three years. Okay. Wait. Okay, we met in '97, and we got married in 2000. So yeah, about three years. Okay. Um, he's like, this is what I've been wanting my whole life. Oh, there was no way we could say no, you know, yeah. even though I had my dream job Yeah. and I was like, okay, but you know, this will never happen for him again. You right. know, this is a once in a life. Right. And I mean, in, in, I mean, in the payoff of like, cause the, the, the situation was okay. He was working for Nomura bank and, um, the, they had somebody else lined up mm-hmm. to go be the sponge. And the guy said, you know, my, my wife doesn't want to move to Tokyo, so I can't go. Right. And so they needed to find somebody. And so like, you know, Rick was like, ah, I want that. I want that chance. I want that chance. And um, so, yeah, we, it probably wasn't going to happen again for him. So I was like, yeah, we got to do it. Yeah. We got to do it. This is, this is your, your, your thing. You need to do it. And so, so I said, you know, I don't know anyone in Tokyo. I've never been. I don't know any Japanese. I don't even know, you know, what the wine scene is like there, but we'll make it work. Um, and it turned out being the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay, you know what? This is a perfect time to take a break. Because <laughs> I want to find out why I'm moving to Asia. <laughs> Putting me to Japan was the best thing ever happened to me. So we'll be right back with more Lisa after a quick break. Did you know that I've been to Walla Walla, Washington three times in the past year? I had the honor of doing a live podcast out there last November. Then I was invited back to be the keynote speaker at the Walla Walla Wine Alliance annual Celebrate Merlot Festival in July. And I was recently there for the first annual Grenache Fest. 
guess what? I'll be back in April of 2024 because for the first time ever, Hospice to Rome will take place outside of the central coast of California and will be held at various locations in downtown Walla Walla. These are exciting times for what is still an under-the-radar wine region. With events like these, it won't be long before the world comes knocking. Do yourself a favor and visit this gem of a wine region before the word gets out. Go to wallawallawine.com for more information and begin planning your trip today. Okay, we're back. So this is this is good. This is good. So didn't know anything about the scene now, but you're like, we'll make it work. Yep. All right. So you had started. Where were you on the MW journey at this point? Oh, um, I think at that stage I passed the tasting part of my exam. I, I passed that relatively quickly. Okay. Um, and then I would I had to go back and do the theory. Okay. Yeah. So again, this period of time is not a lot of online stuff. It's, no, no. So were you having to travel from Japan to or was there Well, no, the good thing is that you know with the the MW Yeah, so tell me about the MW program. Okay. So um there the the bases are basically um of course, London, mm -hmm. but there's also um, a base where they do the seminars or the um, annual seminars that you need to go to uh, in Australia and also in, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm helping out with those now. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, uh, so um, the the Asia people, generally speaking, would go to Australia because it was easier and because Australia had less people anyway. And, and you know, the European people were happy to get rid of, you know, people if they were going to Asia. So um, they were they were already too packed anyway. So um, I wound up hooking up with um, a couple of um, friends in, in Hong Kong who were also doing their MWs at the same time. And that was Deborah Myberg and Jeannie Kelly. Um, and, uh, yeah, we all wound up getting our MW the same year. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so we would study together. Okay. We would travel to Australia together, do the seminars, and then we'd get together in, in Hong Kong and, um, do tastings and study groups and things like that. Currently, how many women in the world hold the title of Master of Wine? No, I think we're getting close to 50-50. I think we've, we're okay. just over 400 Masters of Wine wow. now, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think it's like, I want to say 60% male, 40% female, but don't quote me on that. But yeah. I, I, that's what my, my gut feeling is that mm -hmm. the last I heard. Um, so at that, I mean, that, that's wonderful when you consider, and I should say now I'm, I'm, um, on the exam committee. Okay. Um, so I, I'm on paper chair for the, the tasting part of the exam. Okay. Um, and so I can really speak to exactly how the exam is administered and, and, um, how it goes, but the uh, uh, the one uh, point that I want to make is that when we um, go to mark the exams, it is 100% wine. We have we know nothing about the candidate whose paper we're looking at except for a candidate number, and it will say whether English is their first language or not, so mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. if the words aren't exactly right, right then, yeah. or you know their grammar isn't exactly right, we don't take off points for it, for example, if um, their English isn't their first language. Um, well, not that we do anyway, but it just looks a little bit sloppy and you get, um, but um, so that's, um, you know, I think one of the things that has led to, you know, this, this blind marking, um, uh, a real, first of all, a lot of more women wanting to come on to sure. the exam process, 
but also, you know, um, uh, women sort of <clears throat> making their way up. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that other um, examination techniques are, you know, necessarily bad, but uh, they're not necessarily blind, mm -hmm. if you put it that way. Mm -hmm. When you look at, for example, um, when you're doing a smelling exam, and this is probably unnecessary um, uh, measure that they have to take, but of course, when the person's standing in front of you. Right, because they have a service portion. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, yeah. You're going to know. Right. And yeah. to your point, I mean, then that's just where stuff can. Yep. Where subconscious biases can come into yeah, play. Exactly. Right. That, and I think a lot, of, like, we don't realize how much we're, we're on autopilot. So, yeah. like, you know, so yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so you're on this, you're already on the path to MW at this point. Um, what was your first wine job in Japan? Well, the first wine job I got was um, working at one of the top wine schools there, which was um, the Academy of Japan, um, which is Spurrier. That was the Spurrier Exactly. Wow. So he was a... She don't mess around. She's like, like <laughs> Petrus, Salon, Spurrier, Corny and Barrow. Yeah. So um, they, they asked me to, because um, they, they um, one of the, the problems um, back then, and I don't know, you know so much what it's like now, but a lot of the, the best wine books had never been translated to Japanese. Mm -hmm. So they... Um, there was a real sort of... What a huge market opportunity. Yeah, but they, they, they were starved for... There's you know, thirst, a hunger. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was asked to um, uh, write, and in fact, I wrote a whole course, advanced level wine course um, uh, for them, you know, to to take people to another level. And it was very popular, and we, we had some great students. I mean, it was so, so funny. You know, they would come in on the first day. It was... Um, it's a 10 or 12 week course and they come in on the first day and they were so shy and they wouldn't say anything. You know, they didn't dare ask any questions. And I was always, you know, trying to get them to ask questions. And then after the second or third question, everybody got much more animated and we were happy to ask questions. I should say I had a really good translator and she was amazing because, you know, I had no, <laughs> I studied Japanese the whole time yeah. I was there and I can still just about tell a taxi driver where to take me. Um, it's such a complex language. So I would never try and teach a, a class like that um, in Japanese. I don't have the skills for it, but I had a really good translator. And I mean, she was just, she was a wine lover as well. Um, and she was so dedicated. I would send her, you know, the, um, everything in advance and then she would ask me questions about technical terms and things like that before we even went in um so that you know it, it, we were all prepared um for for the class but it was so much fun but that kind of led because one of the um one of the um co-owners of that school also had a wine importing company okay and um then he offered me a job as a wine buyer for the wine importing company so that actually, you know, helped me a lot with the last part of my MW exam because I was then traveling to Burgundy, to Tuscany, to Bordeaux a lot, um, to Australia, to all of these places to buy wine. Um, and uh, had a lot more access to winemakers and, and a lot more experience um, with, you know, actually being in the wineries, which got me through the theory part of the exam that I needed to get through. Um, but it also, and this is where I said as a sort of cliffhanger, <laughs> was the, the best thing that happened because um, the, the wine importer happened to be um, uh, helping to put together 
some big wine events that Robert Parker was doing in Japan. So of all the places on the planet where you could possibly meet Robert Parker, I met him in Japan. <laughs> um, and, I, and I was tasked as the wine buyer to help source um, um, and uh, make sure the provenance was good of all of these bottles that we were getting in for these dinners that, that he was doing. Um, and so we were doing, you know, 1800s Lafitte and 1900 Margot and 1929 Cam, you know, and we're, we're uh, you know, I, I used a lot of the brokers that I knew in the UK to source the wines that, you know, would be reputable sources to, to purchase these wines um, and to make sure that they were authentic and that they would be good. And, and you know, we, we did two dinners with Joel Robichon, um, doing the yeah. uh, cuisine, and he he did he designed these twenty four course menus to go with all of these. You know, it was like Babette's feast. It was amazing. It's um, incredible. But it, you know, I I you know got the opportunity to work with Rob Park for the first time, and you know I I was dreading meeting him. I you know, I knew what all of the the big, you know. Um, journalists in uh, in London were like and you know um, uh, that was my experience of, of wine critics and wine writers and things like that and you know I, I, many of them I love dearly but they all have these like you know airs and graces and all of this stuff and I thought he's going to be like them but on steroids right for the American yeah he's going to be a monster and he's going to have a chico <laughs> I was like oh I can't take this guy. Um, so I was dreading and meeting him and spending time with him. And, you know, we just hit it off immediately. He's just the nicest, most laid back, um, most deferential, you know, guy. He's always asking me what I thought, you know, you know, um, he would, you know, value my opinion, you know, you know, actually listened to me. <laughs> Which, you know, even, you know, back then, you know, uh, it, for women in the wine industry, kind of hard. Yeah. You know, because yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, a lot of the men, you know, the, particularly the older generations, they just wanted to hear themselves talk about sure. wine. And they were just right. the little girl in the corner. Um, but not not Robert Parker. He was, he was you know, and is, you know, wonderful, you know, and, and just fun. Yeah. I mean, he really is fun. Nobody tells a story. Or a dirty job like Rob Parker. <laughs> I, I love this. I love this because, you know, um, when I started the wine business as a graduate of law school, and then hearing about this guy, Robert Parker Jr., who was a lawyer, the wine advocate, was a lawyer, and, you know, started the publication. And it wasn't about the influence, but as the training I had in law school, like, it's all about like writing briefs is like going back to the most empirical source. It's one of the videos, you know, it's going back as far as you can to verify things. And then it's also making distinctions, right? So like, since Roe, from the time Roe versus Wade, uh, one in the Supreme Court until this was overturned, every year, thousands of cases go to the Supreme Court and you have to distinguish your case from the one at bar. And I, for some reason, just clicked. I was like, he's making like the nuance, he's making distinctions in line. And so it just kind of clicked for me. And also you get to write a shit ton. And I was like, and, and um, wine's way more fun to write about than any legal brief unless, <laughs> I'm not sure into that. Like, but you know, it's just, you know, but, but I love what you were saying about him because he's also, you said he's one of the kinds, funniest, most misunderstood people malign him. I don't know, but 
I mean, there are people in the line like, oh, he ruined my blah, blah, blah. And I've always said, and I've been saying lately, like, no, he probably saved the American wine industry because he made it accessible to consumers yeah. because that's what we do here. We, we take tests from the time we go to school. We take aptitude tests year after year. Then we take the um, PSATs. And that's like, we know scores. And we're sports crazy. We, we know scores. Yeah. It, 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 it's something we're all aware of. So it, it made sense to make it instead of, to me, you know, so I love you sharing that. So that's, thanks for sharing that. You know, and I think that, that, you know, what he did was he, he made it a necessary step to where we are today. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we don't need to rely on scores as much as we do today. Right. You know, we need to make decisions to how we can better inform ourselves about purchasing decisions that we make. But, you know, he made, he was probably the first real wine critic, yeah. you know, and, and independent. Right, right. Because, because he did, because he, he was connected to Yeah, the and he just said, didn't he just liked wine out. and started writing this thing. Yeah. You know. And, you know, I, I remember when I worked at Corny and Barrow as well saying, oh, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't use critic scores. Right. We don't use our own. And I was like, well, yeah, but don't you have fun to sell? <laughs> and so, you know, aren't consumers going to see through that? And they're like, oh, no, our customers trust us. And I think, you know, you can do that to a certain extent. Sure. But to have a third party who's not, doesn't have any monetary interest right. Right. in the sale of this wine to say that it's good exactly. or bad is, is much more valuable mm -hmm. to people. Um, and remains so. Um, the problem with scores, of course, you know, is that they oversimplify what is of a course. complex story okay. about a glass of wine. I'm going to be a little <laughs> What the problem with scores is people are lazy. Yeah. And they only look at the <laughs> And they only look at the score. They're not reading the notes. Yeah. And, then, and then this was my experience. And then if you're in a boom time, 1997, Europe.com boom, young guys have money. They just want high scoring ones. They don't yeah. care. And they're not even really appreciating. So it, it's how, like anything, it's how it's used. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, you're right. It, 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 it can oversimplify. And I, I love what you're saying. I agree. Like for me, scores are guideposts. I look, I do look for a certain, I tell people, like when I see a song that, that like it's 15 bucks and gets a 95, I'm buying two cases of that shit, right? Or, yeah. Um, I'm going to buy a bottle. It depends on the critic. Well, <laughs> yes. And it depends on the critic. 100%. Yeah. And that, that's the, you know, that's, and that's another thing too, right? Yeah. People have to calibrate their pal, at least his pal, right? Yeah. Well, yes and no, you should say that. But, you know, what I'm trying to develop is, you know, drag wine criticism kicking and screaming into the 21st century. I think, you know, that if you're a wine expert, you can actually read the quality of the wine for a broad range of styles. Should be able to, yes. Yeah. Yep. And describe that style accurately and give it a score for that style of- I player. agree, this is it. Yeah, I had this conversation with Owen Bardeen uh, last week about something some like that, that that people you have to, and we talked earlier, you have to put aside your biases because mm -hmm. you're the expert. So you go, you're going to on where it's grown, what is it? Is it tasting like what it should taste, mm -hmm. not just like, Exactly. I mean, you know, all, all um, wine, everything that we're talking about with wine is, you know, is it right? Okay. Now, you know, there's, there's a, a, a ban of acceptable ripeness. Sure. You know, that you can be, you know, something that's on the fresher side or you can be something that's on the richer side. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, we're underripe. 
you know, yep. and there's always a line. Yep, there is Definitely under yep. it. You yep. know, if you're if you're a cabernet and something's too green, if you're a cat front, too I'm like no, hard and chewy, and there's bitterness. Nope. <clears throat> you're you're underripe. Yeah, but you know what? I want to make a lower alcohol wine, so I got to pick early. Right? So yeah. yeah, these are the problems I have. Like like, yep. are you trying to make the best wine possible? Are you trying to make a point that really shouldn't be made because that's anyway. I digress, but yes, you're right. Like there's a line, right? There's a line. And like, there's a can... line when it's overripe. Right. Yeah, yeah, We're into raisin territory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and that's true for any grape variety. Absolutely. And that band becomes more narrow or wider depending on the grape variety. Right. Chardonnay is quite forgiving. Yep. Syrah is quite forgiving. Cabernet Nash. less so. You know, less so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it really is, I think we've got to that stage now where as a wine critic, should be able to see and understand a broad range of valid styles and be able to, and this is the, 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 where a lot of critics are failing consumers is they're not accurately describing what that style is. Yes. So, you know, the words, they're just throwing them out like word salad, right? right. You know, tossing them around, right. you know, and so the person's reading the note and they're going full body. Right. Uh, well, it says 13% alcohol, right. and, you know, actually, it's kind of thin. Right. How can this be full body? Right. You know, but they're throwing these terms out, like, randomly, right. so that the consumer is like, okay, you know what? I'm not even going to read the words because they don't mean anything to me. They, they don't make sense to me. Right. So I'm just going to align myself with this critic's palette and look at the score. Right. And who can blame them? Right. I don't blame them, right. you know, because I look at, you know, a... Uh, when I was at the Wine Africa, I looked at a lot of credit tasting notes. Sure. I, I had one, you know, report coming in for um, a wine region, maybe 900 tasting notes. Um, all of them red wines, all of them from the, the you know, same region, but a big region. Right. Um, ranging from 12.5% alcohol up to 15.5% alcohol. And they were all medium bodied. Yeah. Like that, that person was just packing that word right. in for every single exactly. tasting note. And I came back to them and I said, how can these all be medium body? Do you even understand what the components of body are? Right. And, and what that means? And they, they clearly didn't. Yeah. You know, and yet, you know, they're, they're one of the best known critics in the world. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> that, that's the conversation where we're saying that, like, yeah, like literally, uh, there are certain people who shouldn't be reviewing wines for some region if they're not going to take the time and due diligence to understand the region. Or, you know, just do the basic building blocks of understanding, you know, because this person, you know, hadn't, you know, been formally trained, right. I should say. Right. Um, you know, and yet, you know, they're one of the well, most well-known yep. groups. Well, and I don't mind that because Bob Parker had no formal training. Right. Well, that's, well, that's, you know, so I always, right. I always, you yeah, know, you put, that aside. put that aside, right? Because that's my whole thing about experience is we learn about the WSET. I'm like, listen, I'll take the guy at some small curated shop who's been in the business for 25 years and just fucking loves wine and, and saves up every little thing and then takes a trip to Burgundy every two years. That's how it was Bob. That's how it's that, like that guy has some skin in the game. Yep. You know, and is doing it and, Nothing wrong with mine <laughs> at all. Gives you lots of options. However, um, not trying to do it, not not saying so how can I? Or you don't understand. Exactly. You know. And, and I've and I've heard that from and misleading the consumer. Yeah. That that you know that's just wrong. Yeah. You know, and that's just lazy. Yeah. You know, um, and that that's that's what makes me angry. So coming back to what you said, 
You don't have to align yourself to a critic's palette if you have a critic who is completely. Oh, I, 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 did I say I'm a calibrate. Oh, yeah. Calibrate is a difference, right? Yeah. So I, I know somebody might, somebody might give a wine at 95. Oh, you mean for scoring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. scoring is a 91. And I've calibrated, like, yeah. like if I see someone like 91, that's really high for him. That's, yeah. And that's be, and then I, and I've known from, I'm like, well, they don't actually like that style of wine. That's yeah. why it's so low. Yeah. So, Oh, I'm, I might jump on that 91. Right. So that's what I mean. It's calibrate, not a line, but calibrate. But that takes work. But yeah. yeah. But it shouldn't have to be that way. But yeah. It shouldn't. <laughs> you know, I, I give high scores to a lot of wines that I don't like personally. And I'm well, I, and I appreciate that. But, but that's the thing. Like, I don't, what I have problems with, when you see, you can tell when a critic's change because someone's gotten certain scores and all of a sudden they drop five, six points. And the vintage is not off like that. Like it's, yeah. like, it's like someone new came in. Yeah. They don't like these styles of wine. And instead of, um, and particularly if you're a reader of the publication, instead yeah. of like, okay, what's our history with these wines? What, you know, what, you know, um, well, then it becomes, this is what I think about this wine. Yeah. Which is kind of, your, and you're more, but it's kind of your job as a wine. But also I think, it's actually to be fair for what it is, yeah. is what I think exactly. a critic should do. Because then you're just being an asshole. You're just being critical. Exactly. Because it's more about you right. than about the consumer. <laughs> right. And about the line. You're like, okay, I'm a, I'm not a, you know, God critic, and I'm going to tell you this is good and this right. is bad. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't judge style. I think, you know, that there, there are so many different valid wow. styles, many of which I wouldn't drink. Sure. You know, but I understand that style. I'm the same and I understand I'm what's a good and a bad example yeah. of that style. Right. Right. And if I don't, then I'll, you know, I'll get some experience in it if I'm going to judge it. Right. You know, but, right. but, you know, for somebody to walk in and say, you know, oh no, only this style of wine exactly. is good. And if you don't like this style, then you're stupid. Right. Um, and I, th those are all, you know, lower scoring wines. And, you know, you, you, you go off and buy your low scoring wines. I think that's wrong. Mm. You know, I think, you know, you, you, um, you, who are you to tell a consumer um, what to like and what not to like? You know, but one thing that Bob always said that I, I always appreciated, consumer's palate is the best palate. Yep. You know, he, yep. all he's doing is, is, you know, he gets to taste more wines. Right. And he gets to, you know, tell you, you know, this is a good example or a bad example. But consumer's palate is always the best palate. And so, that's why I always love to constantly hear what consumers think of wines. I'm, you know, I'm always, I, I hate to say on social media, I stalk, you know, yeah. people who talk about wine and yeah. like wine, not people who are in the trade, right? you know, real yeah. consumers yeah. out there, because I want to know what they're drinking, what they love and what they hate. Well, they're not afraid to say what they hate. Well, that's the whole point. <laughs> right? that's, that's like, you need to listen to the yeah. actual consumer. Yeah. And I love that you do that. Um, so yeah, man, you just, so you meet Parker in Tokyo, was that 08 you said or something? Uh, no, this was in 2003. That was 03. Okay. So then this is in the early days. Yeah. Richard, how do you, how do you end up? Did, did you start working for him? So I know you get, no. your, get your M done. I got my MW in 2008. Yep. And I start working for Parker in the same year. Okay. Yeah. Did you got, how did that happen? Were you, did you start while you were in Tokyo or did, did you then? No, uh, in fact, that we were just moving to Singapore. So my husband got okay. a, diff, a new job um, working for a different bank in Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, and so 2008, we're moving to Singapore. Um, I get my MW that year. And how long did you live in Asia? 
Yeah, a long time. Um, so I was in um, uh, Singapore for eight years and Tokyo for about five years. Wow. So, yeah. Singapore I got to the point where I'd lived out of America longer than that. <laughs> I got away from Maine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For you. Yeah, so, um, so yes, then I moved to Singapore. So the 2008 was a magic year. I got my MW, mm. started working for the wine advocate, moved to Singapore. <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> a, lot, a, a lot of moving parts. Um, but, but that was great because my, my first, um, my first big break with, um, the wine advocate was doing Australia and New Zealand. Okay. Which are, you know, closer yes. to, um, well, if you, if you're going to Perth, for example, um, from Singapore, it's the same time zone. It's just four hours straight oh, now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but obviously Australia is a big comp- country. So if you're going to, um, Sydney, it's a bit different. Or if you're going to Adelaide, um, and then New Zealand's a little bit further still. But I, I, we made lots of trips to Australia and New Zealand. The family loved it. They would come in and accompany me on a lot of trips. And I just had, and I, I did a lot by myself, just explored the hell out of Australia and New Zealand. I love those countries. I, I have to say, you know, the, the quality of wines um, in Australia in particular, mainly because it's a much bigger country and it's... Um, a lot more flexibility with the grape varieties um, and the planting materials. Amazing. I mean, they've got some of those James Busby clones that were pre-phylloxera. Yeah, I love, I love. And vines going back to the 18th. I love it. Like, I'm, I'm Grenache. That's my shit. That's my jam. Yeah. Fucking, they have the crazy Grenache vine. Like, and like, so you can buy like a, like literally a 120 year old, old vine Grenache for like 20 bucks. Biggest And then, and then, don't they? Have, I think they have the oldest Mauvais, old Mauvais vines they have yeah. over here. Like, like, so people, like, insane, some insane, yeah. insane stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you go to um, that um, Henschke grandfather block in um, uh, Hella Grace. Oh my God, 1860s vines. They're just old soldiers, and they produce the most magnificent fruit. Oh, it's just magic. Yeah. Just magic. The whole place. I love the Barossa. It's, it's, it's incredible. But so many incredible areas of Australia, you know, Hunter Valley, Yarra Valley, um, Beechworth, Giaconda, um, you know, Clare Valley, um, Wendery. Ever had that before? Oh my God. And I love Margaret River. Uh, we almost bought have some Margaret River. Yeah, it's, such, it's so beautiful. Oh, yeah, I had one. Beaches there are amazing. I drink good all. Oh, he's good. Yeah, yeah oh, and he makes one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. That's I think for me, like I could never know it all, so I just do this podcast to get to them MWs <laughs> and shit like that. And enjoy looking at them. Um, so, when did you come back to the states? Was that under that? Uh, twenty fifteen. Wow! Oh my God! So you. We're doing all that over yeah. there. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so 2015 is when you became the, uh, is that when you became the editor? No, when did you become no, the editor? No, I, I was in, I was still in Singapore when I became the editor in chief of Robert Parker Wine Advocate. That was in, in 20. When did the sale happen? When did the sale happen? End of 2012. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's when I um, took over. Okay. Got Okay. Chief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Bob stayed on for quite some time. I think he left in 2014. Okay. So you got to work with. A young Jeb Dunnick as well. Yes, yes, oh. yes. I uh, hired Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, it was That's, great. It was yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, and so you didn't come back till 2018? Oh. 2015. 2015. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
How did that happen? Because your husband's in finances and banking. Yes, yes. Well, it, his job, and you both have five careers, and you could kind of work from anywhere. So, like, yeah. Well, his job um, was finishing in okay. Singapore, uh, and um, Bob was getting ready to retire. You know, he hadn't retired yet. I think he retired in 2016. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, so he hadn't retired yet. Um, at, we were still running the U.S. office out of his little maryland maryland yeah. you know because yeah. he he um, lives in, in maryland yep. and then the he bought the house across the road from him and turned that into the wine advocate office so everything was still being run out of that little house um and you know we needed to find another base yeah for the wine advocate sure. in, in the u.s and i said well now uh, is a no-brainer yeah. you know that's where you know the core of the wine industry is they're not just in terms of the, the you know production, um, but also a lot of importers are based there. And importers, and then also a lot of Europeans have bought land. I mean, Napa yeah. is is kind of an ep- it's an episode. But you know, even more importantly, they're very relaxed <laughs> importing laws in California yeah. and distribution laws. I hate the East Coast sometimes. So if you're you know working as a critic and you need to get samples sent in, I can't get samples. Yeah, I can't. No, you do. Like <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like, dude, I'm not. I'm like, I'm like, oh, man, now I gotta get. You're on the train and go pick up shit in New York. I'm like, yeah, it's much easier. Yeah, yeah. As a critic, yeah. It was a no-brainer. And so, you know, they didn't take um, much convincing to say, yeah, you're right. We need to set up an office in um, California. Um, And so I went there and set up our our, um, California office. But you had been working on a book because your book came out in 2015. You're right. There you go. I'm I'm working on updating that, actually. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah, yeah. You know how you, you look back at things that you've written and you go, Ooh, No, I don't that. I don't even listen to my podcast. Yeah. No, I, I know. I'd be like I'd be like, oh I, <laughs> I wanna, you know, I, I just feel like I can make I, I'm always looking at how I can simplify things, you know, and make things easier. And I'm, I was just like, Oh my god, and you're just like verbal diarrhea, you know, it's so verbalized. You know, you can just you know, condense that down. I just wanna I wanna make it tighter mm-hmm. and I obviously update some of the technical information in it. Um, but just to make it tighter and, you know, more approachable and more accessible, always looking for ways to do that. Cause, um, whenever, you know, something just, you know, comes off as, you know, highbrow or I- I- inaccessible, I hate that. And so that's what I look at. Sometimes I look at parts of the book and I'm like, Oh, I wish I'd done that better. I said that better. That was a little clearer. Yeah. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm updating the book now. Awesome. Awesome. And so let's talk about. You're just, you know, in 2021, in the and you decided to leave the wine outfit. Yes. Yeah. Store, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what caused you to take the big leap? Well, I, you know, I thought it was, it was time to, to, you know, do things um, the way I wanted to do them and mm-hmm. the way that I thought things needed to be done. By then, um, the wine advocate had been wholly purchased by Michelin Group. Yeah. Um, and you know they they're you know they're a huge corporate entity. I mean, multi. What I love about Michelin people and it's a tire company. People don't realize that a tire company changes the way people eat. Yes. Because <laughs> they want to sell more tires. Yes, exactly. So there's, there's still people where to go eat. So that like like I love origin stories, and I think like that's just that was brilliant. How can we get people to drive more? Oh. Let's rate restaurants and tell them to go to this yeah. restaurant. I mean, but that's like, and they have it wasn't, them all right. it wasn't about, it wasn't about like no. the food back then. It's, but it's so anyway. and, and then they got into the map making. Yeah. Is that right? It's like you sell more yeah, stuff with the restaurants on the map. <laughs> yeah. 
but like you know but yeah oh, it's got a mission story but there's nothing yeah. wrong with that but yeah so yeah so it's time for you to, to, to yeah. do yeah so, so what, what is your way what the wine and the, the wine independent talk about coming full circle coming back to america i'm independent yes well you know i i, I think it, you can, you kind of have to come out and say what you are you know because in in this modern era of of wine criticism you know there are so many ways people aren't independent yeah um, and so you know just to to be very clear from the outset first and foremost independent mm -hmm. um so you know no hidden agendas whatsoever um, and, you know, then put that aside because it, there was a whole w bunch of different ways that I saw that, that wine criticism needed to change for a modern day consumer. And let's face it, you know, what, what we do, you know, like a wine criticism, that's a very niche market anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, just because it's a small and it's a niche market doesn't mean that it's developing. It isn't developing mm -hmm. because it is developing and it is changing and the needs are changing of wine collectors, people who are interested in um, being given new wine discoveries, things that they can look for. And so I thought, you know, first of all, we wanted to to make it more visually compelling. You know, modern day consumers are, are really drawn. To, we, live in a, we live in an Instagram world. In a visual world. Visual world. Yeah. YouTube, Instagram, YouTube. And in many uh, ways, everybody's a photographer nowadays, right. aren't they? Oh my God, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And you've got editing on your phone yeah. and everything like that, yeah. you know. And you, That's you, smart. You, yeah. That said, you know, our my, my business partner and um, uh, one of our the members of our team are both professional photojournalists. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I do think that what they produce is very high level um, in terms of, you know, evoking emotion, um, you know, really capturing the spirit of a winemaker or a place, you know, or, you know, uh, the, the experience that you can get from, you know, enjoying this wine. And so we really wanted to have that be part of the experience of the storytelling. Um, we wanted to do more storytelling. One of the things that used to annoy me, and I think annoyed a lot of consumers about, you know, critical publications nowadays is um, having what I call the big tasting note dumps. So you, you get nothing for a few weeks and then all of a sudden you get this big dump. So uh, true. Yeah, and here you go. Score, 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 right, right. score. It's, it's, it is. Tiny like, little tasting like, notes. Like Everything's meat and body. <laughs> And I'm like, who does that service? They service is no one. And so I thought, you know, for example, I'm, I'm currently working on the um, Napa reporting earlier in the year. It was Bordeaux. We've just done a big champagne report. Well, what we do is we, we do big reports as well. You know, we'll do, you know, several hundred wines with um, a, a, a good, you know, pithy vintage report. I just put out a, a vintage report on the 2021 vintage in Napa Valley. With a few hundred tasting notes but what i also did was like i pulled out some of the interesting players from you know this year that i've been tasting mm -hmm. um you know some of them well-known people um others of them you know people that you know are are new to the game you know that that are are, are producing the very first wine 
um, you know, in the case of Jasud, um, you know, Keaton Modi's um, new wine mm -hmm. that, that's coming out. That was that one of the most popular stories that we've done this year. Or um, Vida Valiente about um, a, um, a charitable organization, but they're also producing a spectacular new Napa wine, you know. And so stories, you know, pulling out stories of, of what people are doing. I did one on um, uh, Tony Biagi recently. I've been doing um, actually a... Um, wine consultant profiles. Um, so I did Aaron Pott the other day. Oh, nice. Yeah. Jean, Jean Hofliger. Um, so, um, yeah. And, and then, you know, at Halloween, I did, um, a couple of stories on haunted wineries. Yeah. Back to that <laughs> poor thing of yours. You gotta read that. <laughs> and I'll never go to those wineries again. Yeah. <laughs> New? Yeah. Um, so some storytelling as well. And then, you know, when it comes to the tasting notes as well, because I mean, a wine criticism website is a tool more than it is anything. So people like to have the little stories that they can read right. um, every week. Every week we publish at least two stories. Um, and then um, with the tasting notes, I, I changed the way that we do the filters. So we've got more filters than anyone else. Um, we have filters for alcohol level. Mm. So we get the alcohol levels of all of the wines that we taste, whether it's, I say to the winemakers, can either be the technical one, the real one, for, you know, the one on the bottle. But, you know, even if the one on the bottle is a little bit of fiction, yeah. at least it gives you a general indication. Sure, sure. It gives you the same experience of picking up this bottle right. and saying, okay, this is 14% alcohol. Right. It gives you a ballpark, right? right? Um, the other thing I do with myself and for the other critics that work for the publication is we're all um, on the same page about what body means. So the mm -hmm. five levels of body, light, light to medium, medium, medium to full, full body. And I go through with other people that are writing to notes for me saying, okay, this is what we mean by, you know, light body. Mm -hmm. and, you know, body is, is, is quite a simple technical term, if you will. It's, it's largely made up of alcohol level. Um, so alcohol lends a sense of weight on the palate, but it's also dry extract. So the level of tannin, you have a high level tannins that will have a higher level of, of dry extract and weight heavier on the palate of something that has very light tannins or white wine has no tannins, for example. So if you had a red wine and a white wine of the same alcohol level, both of them dry, the white wine would necessarily be lighter body because yeah. it doesn't have any tannins or anthocyanins to give it extra weight. And then residual sugar, of course, as well, um, lets a, a sense of weight on the palate. And once you know these things, you can very easily calculate, okay, where does it sit here? So if somebody, you know, it's all, it's all medium body, Lisa. It's all get, medium. get off your Just <laughs> <laughs> make it easy for people. Even the people writing it. Medium body. Medium body. Yeah. No. no. Because because, you know, depending on your situation, your mood, or maybe Absolutely. You know, if you want a lighter bodied style. Right, no, and like you it's you want something that's fourteen percent or below. And, right. and on, on our website you can actually dial in. That's that's kind of the other major thing we have is we don't have any more, you know, one thing we do on my Parker One after we we did on my program right now, but is we have the proprietary blend that you, you tick off as a filter. Or you have, you know, the Bordeaux blend, which tells you nothing about what the grape variety is. So uh, you know, say you're in America, if it's if it's a proprietary blend red blend, it's a shit ton of Merlot in it, just so you know. <laughs> Maybe some thank you. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at those M ones because typically I know I like. I mean, I don't drink those, but like I'm going to drink a Bedrock Morgan, which is going to be a mixed black field blend. I, that's you know. Oh, those are gorgeous. Those are amazing, right? But yeah, to your point, man. If you're trying to get one over on the consumer, get one over on the consumer. 
you know. But there's a big difference between, you know, tasting, if you know you love Cabernet and you hate Merlot, right. you know, you want to know what that is. Right. And for example, you know, a lot of people are really, you know, gravitating towards Cabernet Franc now. Yep. So you go on the website, you look at, you know, for example, I rated um, about 900 wines from the 2022 vintage and, and Bordeaux earlier this year. Yep. Um, you can dial in and find out, okay, how many of those are mostly Cabernet Franc? Yeah. You know, and you'd be surprised to know how many wines in the Medoc are actually mostly Merlot. Oh, you know, I, and so you're buying a Medoc wine, you know, you're getting a Cabernet-based wine. Maybe you're not. Yeah. But this is how you can dial in style for yourself better on our website. Mm. You can find the style of wine you want first. You can filter for it first in a big report like that. I think I think I've got to dial in your style. <laughs> I like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And then you can look at the scores. Once you've got it down to the style that you want, right. finding the best scoring example of that style. And then, of course, price. And they're like, and I, and I, this is my range. Yep. Like I said, no. Yes. You know, we've got one of the best um, link, link ups with um, Wine Searcher out there as well. So you, it's pretty accurate when you also look at the price as mm -hmm. well, because the, the feed that we're getting is an API um, rather than a, what I call a data dump. Um, <laughs> technical stuff. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, this is one of the things that I wanted to work very hard on. And when, you know, when, you go out on your own. You don't go out on your own. I, I didn't call it the separatibrown.com. I'm not interested in, you know, the, the ego thing. I just wanted to do something better. Yeah. You know, yeah. and to keep that, that, you know, that vision that Robert Parker had alive for, for independent wine criticism, but taking it a step further and yeah. really putting the consumer in the driving seat yeah. and saying, okay, you, I'm not telling you what's good or bad. I'm telling you what the wine is like and whether it's a good or bad example of that style. And you dial in your style, you know, you know what you like. Yeah. And then I'll tell you what the best quality example of that style is. And that, I think that's where wine criticism needs to go. Ah, uh, wow. I love that. Obviously, it takes a lot more work to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Okay, salmon swimming upstream. <laughs> but it's, but yeah, no, I think that's amazing. And, and, and I think there's a movement now. There's just a movement, you know, like, uh, I, I read, uh, I need to subscribe, but I get there. I sent you a subscription. No, not to oh. you. I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but there's a, Barry Weiss was a writer for New York Times. She had a thing called the free press and it's the same thing. It's about trying to get back to just the fact. I mean, every writer, but, but just the facts, right? Not, not all the spin. Right. You're right. Journalism. Right. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So did you look at whatever media source and right. you know, okay, yeah, I know exactly. where stand. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and so it's going to be some spin. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so I, I love that because, you know, um, what you're doing. Um, wow. It's been a while since we started talking and we have to go do other stuff. You talked wonderfully <laughs> well and perfectly. Thank you so much. Just a few, a few more things and then we'll wrap up. Um, so I pulled this game. Okay. It's called Slap Lick Fondle. It used to be FMK, but I had to change it because someone. Oh dear. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm going to give you, it can be uh, great varietals, but for you, cause you're a critic and I got now and, and what, you, what you review, I'm going to give you three wine regions. So you get, you slap one, you get to lick one and you get the fondle. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so Napa Valley, mm -hmm. the left bank, in the right bank, who you slapping? Who you? Oh, no, I, I know it's it's what I know it's that's why it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. Okay. 
And this is just my personal This is your personal preference. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, I love that. Should I start with the slap first? You can start wherever you want. Yeah. Okay. You can, you can, you can, if you already know your liquor, you can, you can just, just. I already know. Well, I, mean, yeah. I already know because right. I know. Um, okay. My slap would have to be right bank for now. Oh, I'm going to back for you. Yeah. And my, my lick would have to be Napa, and my uh, fondle would have to be left bank Bordeaux. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. No, good. But you know, I, I, cause I, I love Cabernet. I, mean, I love, yeah. I love Merlot too. Right, right. Um, but, you know, my, I'm like, oh my God, great Cabernet. Um, and uh, that's right. And I love, I, I, you know, it would, it really is a toss between Napa and sure. Cabernet. If I were to look at and and left bank Bordeaux, because if I were to look at what I drink the most of, it would be it would pretty much be fifty fifty. Wow, and, yeah. you know, and I I I love both of those regions. I think they're both very very special and unique on the planet because nobody can produce consistently great Cabernet like those two areas. Right. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing um, because it's it's a, it's a hard grape variety in the nail, like you know. You know, it's a really hard grape variety yeah. now. Um, but, and when I was talking before about ripeness, it's got a much narrower ripening window than other grape varieties. Yeah. Um, and you need very special circumstances to do that. Wow. Very cool. Um, you started at a wine bar. Didn't know idea about wine. Was there a bottle of wine that you had early on where you're like, oh, this wine thing is kind of cool? Do you have a memorable bottle or, and maybe it wasn't the wine, but what, like, a, yeah, do you have a memorable, is there a bottle that really kind of made the light bulb go on or is there a bottle of wine that you've had and maybe you've had consistently like, oh my God, this wine, like you've watched something mature, is there a wine that you just are gaga for? Well, there, there, there's a, there's both actually. So, okay. the, you know, the first wine that, that I could afford to buy, and this is a very humble wine because, you know, I was earning very much money. Um, but you know, I, um, there was a bin in sale at a, a wine shop that wasn't very far from where I was living on, at, uh, the wine bar. And, you know, even though I was working at a wine bar, I couldn't afford, you know, yeah, the top wines on there. Oh. Um, but it was just a very humble, you know, Margot was a, uh, Don Blue They call it on Day. Now, um, you know, uh, Cru Bourgeois. You know, and this was um, uh, 1985, and they, they so were selling magnums. Yeah. yeah, well, no, back then it didn't have very much age. This was in the early 90s. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, um, so, um, but it, yeah, no, um, and I remember drinking that. You know, it was just delicious, and it was affordable. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, this, this, this is what wine's about. You mm -hmm. know, just enjoying. That's wine. it. Yeah. Um, and then you know, I had. Um, 89 and brown. Mm. That'll do it. And that was like, yeah, that'll do it. Wow. That, that was mind bending. That, you know, that, that was incredible. Yeah. Um, and then obviously when I went to Corny Barrel, that went, you know, but this is when I was still back at the wine bar. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you, when you have these, you know, experiences, first of all, you know, affordable deliciousness. That's, that's like what you want in wine. Yeah. Right. That's what. And then, yeah. you know, Okay, this is luxury. unaffordable. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. That's fine. I see. <laughs> but I see what that people pay there. Like, like I tell people, like, and, and if you, hopefully, you more people get the opportunity to taste these wines, and it's just fortune, it's just luck. But like, when you do have one of those in Obreon, for me, eighty-two Cheval Blanc or ninety Cheval Blanc or eighty-six Cheval Blanc. Cheval Blanc, anything. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That, that's why I'm right back. Cheval yeah, Blanc, yeah. fucking. Yeah. Just 
killed. But Sheffield Blanc is like, I don't know, it's, it's its own animal because it's not left bank or right bank. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got, you know, so much Cabernet Franc. Yeah, it's a leader. It's, 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 and it, it's, it's unique um, terroir. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's terroir that only really, you know, exists between it and Fijian. Um, so, yeah. It's, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Drink, 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 drink Cheval Blanc and when in doubt, drink Fijian. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, Jack's getting up there. Now. I know. Can you believe it? Um, Lisa, what are you most excited about for the future? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm just, you know, it, it, I'm, well, you know, probably my business partner will say, you know, I'm always coming up with ideas on how we can improve the website. So I've got all these ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, obviously we have to go baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. But, you know, I think that, you know, the, the future of, I think, you know, there's a great future for, for wine criticism. And I think that, you know, we're still, we're not, we're only scratching the surface of how we can make things a lot easier for consumers to find the wines that they love, you know, and that's what it's all about, finding the wines that they love, you know, and, and where can I buy it? You know, that, that's, that's our job, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, rocket science. It's, it's just, but, Wine is so complicated. I mean, we were listening this morning to presentation, 400,000 labels of wine in America at any one given time, you know, and, and how do you narrow that down so that a consumer can say, I just want a nice experience tonight. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I think we can do it. Um, I've got so many crazy ideas about how we can do it, you know, make it easier for people to find what they're looking for and to speak their language. Um, but, um, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh my God. This was incredible. This was, uh, this was worth the trip to Italy. Yay! Absolutely. <laughs> um, tell people where they can find you, how, how they can be a part of what you're doing with the wine. Yeah. The com. Yeah. Come on over. I should, uh, all of their articles are free to read now, so you can check them out. Um, the, the tasting notes are behind the paywall, but right now. We're having a free um, six-day trial subscription, so you can check out um, how the filters work and the database. We do, we do review a lot of wines. We reviewed, I think, in our first year, over 5,000 wines. We've got nearly 10,000 wines in the database now. And we're going That's a lot of wine. Yeah, right. you can consider we've only been going for a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's um, yeah, we're growing, growing, growing. We're honing in on what we think um, you know, uh, offers a broad range of wine styles for every consumer time. So, definitely, guys, check it out. Um, for all you listening out there, don't forget to check out the show notes. That's where uh, you'll find. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to our website. I'll put a link to her personal IG. Um, we just grabbed this random bottle, so I'm probably not going to put notes on that in there. But uh... <laughs> I will be right there. Yes. <laughs> So until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, all you wine drinkers, your boy MJ saying peace. Thank you, Lisa, so much. Cheers. Mm, salute. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.